Well, let's open up uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, and uh, nothing's changed over 2,000 years. What he did in Dwayne's life, what he's done in my life, what he's doing in your life, he was doing 2,000 years ago, and thankfully, uh, we have these God-inspired letters to help us to lay hold of all of this great gift of the salvation that he has given to us. And so, uh, we're picking up in chapter 2 this morning, and uh, last week we uh, went through verses 12 down through verse 18, uh, but I skipped a couple verses in there that it's important to go back and pick up this morning. In fact, it's really important. I believe it's a truth that God really wants to call us to individually and as a church body this morning. Um, but to, to set that up, let me just read verses 12 through 18, and then remind us a little bit of what we looked at last week, and then we'll jump in to the two verses that uh, I skipped over last week. So, beginning at verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2. And, and by the way, if you're here for the first time this morning and you don't have a Bible, there's where you can get an online version, or you can pick up a copy in the pew in front of you. Or man, if, just feel free to ask the person next to you to read off of their copy. Um, I mean, we're in this thing together, and uh, it's just really important, and I really want to encourage you to read it for yourself. But beginning in verse 12, uh, Paul, writing to these believers in Philippi, the Spirit speaking to us today, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, Rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And so what we looked at last week is that God has given us this amazing gift of salvation. Well, this is what we look at every week, isn't it? He's given us this amazing gift of salvation. Now, he's talking here to people who are already Christians. So he's not talking about becoming a Christian. He's talking about what it means to live as a Christian and continue to unwrap and live in the fullness of, of what God has saved us for. In other words, that we would become who He wants us to be. And so he says that that all takes place by us working out this salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who has worked in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So, we're just simply called to be living out the life that God is putting in us. And that's the whole emphasis in this passage. And it tells us very clearly that, that God puts in us and He changes our desires as well as gives us the ability to do what He called us to do. That's an amazing thing. Only God can change a heart like this. 
This is an inside work of God so that our desires change when we become a Christian, and now we have the power and the ability to do the things that God calls us to do. And so we have this beautiful picture. Now, the key to this whole thing, as we looked at last week, is found in the commands. What God commands is Him saying, this is the desires I'm putting in you. This is what I'm giving you the ability to live out. That's why commands are so, so critical. And then He gives a command that just seems off the chart that we would love to wiggle and wrestle through. The commands of verse 14, what is it? Yeah, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I mean, this dawned on me as I was preaching last week, and I said it, but boy, it's really come home this week. Only God could do this. Only God could give us a desire not to grumble, right? Some of you are natural grumblers. You just like to bellyache about everything, but even all of us, this is true, right? There's something within us, and there's something within us that even likes it. Is that twisted? It's just part of our fallen nature. And what God says, I'll give you a desire to not want to mumble and mutter under your breath anymore. Only God can do that. And when He gives the desire, guess what? He even gives the ability Talk about miracle upon miracle. And so he gives this desire and this ability to do all things without grumbling or arguing or disputing, and that may be mostly directed towards him. Now, last week or uh, on Thursday, every week I put out an under four, and uh, if you're not getting it, 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 it's meant to be read in under four minutes, but I often follow up what I've said on Sunday. And if you're not getting that, just write something down or call the office or email the office this week and we'll get you on it. But I took us back to one of the Psalms where one of the leaders in, of the Jews, Asaph, grumbling at God. We will find grumbling throughout the Scriptures. And what's that? That's encouraging that this is something we do. But then Asaph brings himself around to recognize, well, first of all, he says, I, I was grumbling, this is what it reduced me to, and he uses the word, I became a beast. And then he flips around and gets God back into view and quits his grumbling. So when we grumble, it doesn't bother God. He is very secure about this whole deal, Okay? But what it does is it robs us and wastes our emotional energy and other things, and it causes and may bring some damage to God's reputation. There's just not a lot of good that comes out of it. We will do it, but there's not a lot of good that will come out of it. And let me show you some verses that just emphasize this. This was written to the church at Corinth. He says, nor grumble as some of them did, talking about the people of Israel in the wilderness, and were what? destroyed by the destroyer. He's saying grumbling is serious. It's serious. And what Paul is saying to the people at Philippi, what the Spirit is saying to us today is do not minimize grumbling. Grumbling prevents us from laying hold of this salvation that God has for us. Here's another one in Isaiah. 
And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. It's talking about the redemptive work of God. He takes people who are going astray and he brings them to understanding. And those who murmur what? will accept instruction. You know what murmuring and grumbling and muttering does? It prevents us from being learners. It prevents us from being instructed by the Lord or whoever. Kids, if you're muttering about your teacher, I can guarantee what what, what it will do. It will prevent you from learning as quickly as you could learn in that class. Kids, if you're muttering and murmuring about your mom or dad, I can guarantee what it will do. It will limit your ability to be instructed and actually grow. It's just what it does. And that's why Paul says, I don't want you to waste any of your efforts. I want you to lay hold of this salvation that God has given you. In fact, here's a question. Will there be any grumbling in heaven? No. That's where he's trying to get us to. Here's a positive way of viewing this. In 1 John 5, 3, he says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not, what? Burdensome. That is a radical shift because why would we grumble and complain? Because we see his commandments as burdensome as opposed to the way that God is loving us and for us to live right in the center of God's love and the security and the fullness of that. And so, what does he tell us to do rather than grumble and argue and dispute? He tells us the next command is down there in verse 18, rejoice and share your joy. Now, what does that do for a marriage? If you quit grumbling and you rejoice and share your joy, what's that do? What's it do for a family? What's it do for a church family? It changes everything, doesn't it? Changes everything. Now, the reason for the command, verse 15, so that, is so that you will prove or become or begin to be, it can be taken anyway, blameless, innocent, children of God is who we are. And so there is a growth here above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. Now, we spent quite a bit of time on that last week, but the reason he didn't want them to be grumbling is because grumbling prevents them or slows down the process of them being blameless, innocent children of God above reproach, and so on and so forth in that verse. And, uh, and that's what he wanted them to be. And so we looked at this last week of what it means for us individually to cooperate and to be a part of what God is doing in our lives. Now, I could have easily have left you with the impression last week that then the spiritual life, your spiritual well-being is absolutely only dependent upon you because God works this in us even in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And while nobody can cause you to stop grumbling and to become blameless in it but you, I mean, you have to be a part of this. You're the one who has to trust and obey. I have to trust and obey. I am no victim of anybody. The Christian life is never a solo life. I mean, this is written to a congregation of people. But we see it even more in the two verses that I skipped last week that God never intends us to live the Christian life in solo, 
There are always people there who will help us grow in this area, to use the specific command of grumbling, to help us to see God doesn't want us to grumble, that He'll put it within us a desire to not grumble, and He will help us not to grumble. There's people that God puts in our lives to help us to do that, to disciple us, to mentor us. I'm using the term this morning to spiritually parent us so that we can become these blameless, innocent children of God above reproach in this crooked and perverse world. And so it is not a solo life. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. Now, before I do that, Warren Worsby uh, came up with a quote, radio Bible teacher, pastor for years, that, that just shows the radical change that Paul is after here in describing salvation like that. This He says this, life is not a series of disappointing ups and downs, rather it is a sequ- sequence of delightful ins and outs. Now, I've been thinking about this all week. This is a radical viewpoint, radically different. Life is not a bunch of ups and downs, but it is what? A sequence of delightful, that's where you count it joy, ins and out. God is always working in me for me to work it out in those circumstances. That is a radically different viewpoint than seeing life like this. And that's what Paul's after here. And so let's look at this whole issue of spiritual parenting because it's a big part of what is going on here. And I want to suggest to you that it is something that God had worked in the Apostle Paul, and as he writes this letter, he is working it out. He is working it out. So in verse 16, holding fast the word of life, and we see another, so that, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain, But even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And so here I see Paul as saying, I want to be a proud parent of you. And I will be joyful in this process and I will be responsible So three adjectives that I want to show you just come out of these verses. One is a desire. I desire to be a proud parent. One's an attitude. I will be joyful. And one emphasizes his responsibility, in this case, to the Philippians. So let's just go through each one of these. We see this desire there in verse 16. He says, I want to be proud. I want to be glory with you. I want to have a proud day concerning you Philippians. When does he see that proud day? What's it say? It says, on the day of Christ. All of Paul's spiritual parenting looked forward to a day when he would stand before Jesus Christ And he wanted the Philippians to stand before Jesus as well. And he wanted his buttons to burst because God allowed him to have a part in them being there and having them not just be there, but have lived their lives opening up this gift of salvation. 
That was his desire. He longed for that. He worked towards that. And so, let's just put it in these terms. He says, I want my efforts in helping you grow spiritually to cause me to be proud when we see Jesus Christ. That's what he says there in those verses. He says, I don't want my life to be a waste. I don't want my running to add up to a big old Zippo with you. I want to, when we stand before Jesus Christ, to see that God used me to help you spiritually grow. That's what I want. Now, you might say, isn't that really self-serving? No. Why? Well, where did that desire come from? It came from God. That was a desire God had worked in the Apostle Paul, where he would see everything as culminating on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if Paul is proud on that day because people have come to know Christ and they've walked with Christ and they've grown in that salvation, isn't that good for them too? Isn't that the best thing possible for them? Say yes. Yes. And so here we are at the Christian life again. Win-win. Paul wins on that day. Each of the Philippians and the church body win. There is nothing selfish about this that hasn't come from God. And so this is his desire. Man, I want my efforts to add up on that day when we see the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his desire. And now his attitude is to to be joyful. And he uses an illustration here that makes no sense to us in verse 16. He says, holding, uh, verse 17, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you. Here's the deal. If you were living in Philippi during those days, there were all kinds of idols to different deities of the Roman pantheon. And growing up as a pagan, you would take different food sacrifices to those idols, and you would put the food sacrifice up there, and you would pour out a drink offering of wine or strong drink to accompany the sacrifice. That's the picture here. And Paul is saying, you are the sacrifice. He says there, it is your sacrifice and the service of your faith. He's saying it is primarily your standing before God, your life of living as a living sacrifice by faith in God and your service and your service to me, he would even say. That's the primary offering. But God's allowed me to be a drink offering to pour out my life to cultivate your sacrifice and service of faith. And he says, I do that joyfully. And pouring out is pretty vivid, isn't it? He's saying, I give up. I pour myself out. So that your service and your sacrifice would be of faith on that day. This cost me something, but I do it joyfully. 
I do it joyfully. So maybe we can put it like this. He says, even if I expend myself and die helping you spiritually, I rejoice for my part in your lives, and I share my joy with you all. And so, we might even be responsible to teach and to, to parent and all that that's included in that. What happens if a parent cannot be right there with the ones that they're spiritually parenting, or let's just say with their own children. What does a responsible parent do if they cannot be there to personally be the parent? Two things, well, probably three in this day and age, two in Paul's day and age. Paul's day and age, you would either write something to them, or you would make sure that Somebody can step in and do the spiritual parenting that you cannot. In our day and age, we can call. But there's those things that we can do. And that's exactly what Paul does, and it launches us into the rest of this chapter. Um, First of all, he is writing this letter as a spiritual parent. He is writing this letter to give them instructions and he's going to send it back with Epaphroditus. But let's just read down through the rest of this chapter. He says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirits who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus." But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And so what does Paul do here? Paul is chained to a Roman soldier. He cannot go. He writes this letter And he says, I will, I hope to send Timothy. He says, I trust in the Lord that I may be able to come shortly, but I thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you right now. Isn't this exactly what a good parent does? I can remember when Camilla and I uh, used to go to Indonesia. And uh, obviously, uh, someone needed to help in our home. And so when we were going to be gone for two or three weeks, however long it was going to be, 
What, what, what did we try to do to just be responsible parents? Well, Camilla would write out all the school assignments and all the chores. She would write out everything and leave that. Right, Bethany? She would write that out. But when they were younger, my parents came down and stayed with them. And after two trips, they realized they were too old for this deal. <laughs> two trips and them all having the flu. Yeah, that, that just bumped it out of their court real quick. And thankfully by then, our kids were old enough to function pretty well on their own. And so there was all the instructions, and then we would have people that would come in to help. Joanne Deming was one of those. And she'd come in, and one of the times where our two oldest that were in the home at that time were about to murder each other, they knew enough to go over to Jose and Mimi's house and get things sorted out before there was blood in the house. And so that's what resp- responsible parents do, is they, is they make sure that parenting can take place in their absence, through written or through other competent people that can come in and do that. That's all Paul is doing here for these Philippian believers. He says, I hope to send Timothy... I hope God releases me from this imprisonment so I can come, but I will send Epaphroditus to you right now, and he will, in fact, carry this letter that I have written to you. Now, we're going to come back and look at Timothy and Epaphroditus, look at the relationship to Paul and the relationship to the Philippians church that makes them good people to go in his place. Uh, shows how responsible he is for them. And we're going to see some of the own characteristics within those men that just make them good spiritual parents themselves. And so we're going to come back and look at that next week. But this morning, I think it's really critical that each of us who have known Jesus for at least a few months understand that God calls us to be spiritual parents. He calls us to help other people understand what God is working into their lives concerning desires and what He wants them to do so that they might open up this gift of salvation. That is part of what God works in every believer. It's not unique to the Apostle Paul. How do I know that? Because He's commanded us all to do this. He's commanded us all to go make disciples. All that is is go be a spiritual parent to people. Share the gospel with them. If God bursts them into the kingdom, now you got a new baby to care for. Help them publicly identify with Christ through baptism and then begin to begin to teach them how to obey everything that God has commanded. That's simply a command to be a spiritual parent, right? And so God is working in everybody to give us this desire and to give us the ability to do this. So let me ask for some help here. Why don't we do it? Why don't we do this? Tell me some reason. Fear? Fear of what? Okay, fear of rejection. We could probably... What other fears? Failure? 
Okay, not knowing enough? Inadequacy? Somebody else could do it better? Okay, what are some other reasons we don't? Okay, ridicule from who? Okay, from anybody? Okay, lack of knowledge. Okay, priorities. Selfishness. Our own witness, what do you mean by that? Okay, I don't want to witness to people because their life may materially look better than my life does. Okay. Um, how many of you have done spiritual parenting? Is it neat and clean? It is, it is just like real parenting. It's complicated, it's messy, it costs you, your heart breaks. Um, it's just so messy, isn't it? And, and so it's easy for us to back away from this thing. It's easy for us just to back away. Rather than realizing God wants to, well, he has given us this desire. He wants to cultivate the desire so that each Year we get older in Christ, this is a greater desire than it was before, no matter how the spiritual parenting is gone. And many of you mentioned, I'm not competent, I don't know enough. By the way, would any of us have kids if, if God entrusted physical children into our lives, if it was dependent on competency? <laughs> you think it's going to be different in the spiritual realm? Got a new brother over there with a brand new baby. I mean, you think you're competent till you bring the little baby home from the hospital and they get a little older, right? Who gives us the ability to be the spiritual parent? Is it our competencies? No, not that we shouldn't work at that. It is God who doesn't just give us the desire, but helps us to do it. I think our response to the spiritual parenting is just like Moses God said, came to Moses, he's 80 years old, he wasn't a young buck, right? He, he had a passion for people and the way they were being abused, but he went about it in all the fleshy ways. And so God spent 40 years of teaching him what it means to be a humble man. And God comes to him one day in this amazing encounter with a burning bush, and he says, I have heard the cries of my people, they're in slavery, they are a deeply afflicted people. And he says, I am going to send you to go and bring them out to a land flowing with milk and honey. And you remember what Moses said? His first question, who am I to do this? You remember God's answer? I will be with you. The question is not who you are. The question is who is with you. Well, Moses wasn't done arguing and grumbling about this position job. And so he said, uh, please, Lord, I've never been a good speaker. 
I have a thick tongue. To which God says, so who made a person's mouth? Who gives them the ability to speak or to be mute? Who gives them the ability to hear and see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I, even I, will be with you and teach you what to say. Moses' response, please, Lord, send the message by whomever else you want, just not me. And so then he included Aaron as a part of that. I think we're just like Moses. And I think God's response to us is exactly the same. He says, there is an ocean of people that need the good news. There's an ocean of people who are afflicted. Go. Spiritually parent them. And we want to grumble and argue. Who am I? And when Jesus says, and and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, that's not good enough for us. I'm not a good speaker, Lord. I'm not good at this. See, our problem is all dealt with in the command of verse 14. This is one of those all things that we're to do without grumbling and arguing with God about. This is one of those things that God calls us to cultivate this desire and to move forward in this parenting and trust that His presence and what He's done in our life will see us through it. And so I want to ask you just to take and put your name in here And I want to ask God to create in each of us a desire to stand before Jesus someday with other people, with our buttons bursting because of our part in their life. And I want to ask God to cultivate in our hearts a joyful attitude as we expend our lives, not merely upon our own interests, but upon the interests of other people. And that we trust him to help us to be responsible spiritual parents. And I would encourage each of us to think through whose names will be in here. I want my efforts in helping whose name should be there. Grow spiritually. To cause me to be proud when we see Jesus Christ one day. Even if I expend myself and die helping this person spiritually... I rejoice for my part in their life and I share my joy with them. I tell them what a joy it is even though they're so much of a knucklehead so often. And I will give responsible, I will be responsible to spiritually parent them as they need and get others to help when I cannot provide it. I kind of screwed up that last sentence there, didn't I? It's a good thing God didn't call me to, to wait until my sentences on PowerPoint were perfect before I preached, huh? 
Now, I just want to, we're going to pick this up next week, but this is a big deal, my dear brothers and sisters. This is a big deal. And I understand the reasons to pull back from this. And uh, this is a big deal. Now, those of us that have children, they're the primary ones that we put their names in there. But I want to suggest to us all that there needs to be other people in addition to our family. Partly, if you've got children growing up, if you're not doing this with other people, they're not going to think that they can do it to other people. In fact, let me say this. Uh, who are, who's in middle school here this morning? Just raise your hand if you're in middle school. Okay. You should be spiritually parenting some people. You're further along spiritually than people you're around. I know that. And you high schoolers, you should be spiritually parenting people. Now, you may get in over your head real quick, and that's when you run to dad or mom or to the church and say, help. But you should be young adults. You know what I think one of the great travesties of the church is? That some of those who are most living the most moral lives are doing the least in being spiritual parents. For some reason, we have pictured this day of standing before Jesus as just a judgment on how moral we lived. That wasn't even on Paul's radar here. His issue was, how many people have I helped to get there and help mature? Being blameless is a part of the deal, but but you standing there saying, I lived a perfectly moral life. Oh, but nobody's going to ever get to heaven or ever grew because of my efforts. That's a life lived in vain. And so I want to ask God to cultivate this desire within us. And for some of us, we're going to have to work at cultivating it because we've been beat up or banged up or we feel inadequate. And we just need to hear Jesus say, this is my commandment. This is a desire I'll put within you. I'll cultivate the attitude of joy, and I will be with you. You can do this competently. It really is that simple, isn't it? So would you bow your heads, please? If this is something that you have excused away, the beginning point is just repentance. And just say, God, forgive me. And thankfully with God, there's always a fresh mercy, isn't there? And there's a fresh chance to say, God, this is a desire you want to build in me, and I want to cultivate it. This is an attitude. And maybe even go to the question of, Lord, who do you want me to spiritually parent? Who do you want me to spiritually parent? Father, I thank you for working in us as a body of believers and individually a greater desire to be spiritual parents to others and to really, really put our heart and energies into helping as many people stand with us on the day that we stand before you and having had the joy of contributing to their salvation. And thank you, Lord, that we are inadequate. We're really spastics at this. 
but thank you that you are present and your spirit will lead and guide and teach. And so we just trust in a competency and sufficiency that comes from you. Lord, I look at us here at Calvary and I think of how much we have to offer to people who are stuck. They're lost or they're wandering through life. And I just can't help but hear your voice say, go, go, go be a spiritual parent to them. By your grace and in your power, may we be faithful to that calling. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.